Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Hey, welcome back everybody to our study of the Avergatinos. And we're picking up this evening on page 209 and we're in hypothesis 25. And uh, if you remember the fathers have been speaking to us here about the ease of pursuing the path that leads to sin or to evil. Uh, whereas the more difficult path is the path of virtue for us. And we are to seek to emulate, obviously, the latter, and also to seek out to be around those who are pursuing this path as well to, in order to guide us. And uh, so that will be what we'll be finishing up here in Hypothesis 25 and 26. We're given examples of, of those who are entering into the life about choosing well and uh, being tested before entering into the monastic life about whether or not they really desire to embrace the discipline uh, of the ascetical life. And I think this is something important for us as well. We hear you know, Christ you know, say something similar in the gospel about counting the cost or making sure that you know, when you start a building, lay the foundation that you're able to complete the work. And, uh, and so, having that desire within our hearts to, to live for the Lord, to embrace the ascetic life, to engage in the struggle with, with sin and to seek to grow in virtue. Uh, we can't be uh, only half in. It's not a enterprise that we can enter in half-heartedly. It, it requires the whole self. And I think that's what we'll get a good insight into in the next hypothesis. But again, we're on page 209, at the very bottom of the page with the paragraph, uh, starting with the word become. Become one of the elect and the few, and then not one of the many and the perishing. For those who do evil, whether they are in a Cenobitic monastery or in any place whatsoever, are the sons of the evil one who resemble the tares in the midst of the wheat. Be wheat then, so that you may be gathered into the barns of the Lord and not burned like Darnell in the unquenchable fire. Consider that the righteous Lot dwelled in Sodom, but was not carried away with its hedonistic, uh, hedonism and wantonness. For this reason, he was saved as it is written. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. He adds, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished, and so on. And so, uh, those who do evil, uh, whether they live in the world or within a particular monastery, uh, face the same uh, same end as all of us. We stand before the Lord for judgment about our life, how we've lived it and the zeal that we've had for him and to love others. And, uh, and it's only God who's able to do this. And it's interesting, he makes reference here uh, specifically to the Darnell. And he's speaking here of Matthew 13, 25 through 30. And I've always loved this little passage. And uh, when I did a little research on it for a homily once, I came across uh, the meaning of what was being talked about there, the sowing the seed that was, would produce uh, something that looked like wheat but wasn't. And it's called the bearded darnel, the seed. And it comes up and looks exactly like wheat. 
but it's not until it comes into and bears full fruit and then sifted out that you can tell the difference. And, uh, but it's poisonous. Uh, and so the, the question was, does one remove that or wait until it's the time for the harvest? And the answer is that we wait till the time for the harvest, that we uh, restrain judgment because we, you know, while they're growing, they're, it's, they're indiscernible in terms of whether they're evil or they're good often. And that can be true of what's within the human heart as well. And so this constant examination of weighing what's going on within our own hearts and how fully we are responding to God's call to holiness and conforming our lives to the gospel is something that's necessary for us. Uh, even when we find ourselves living in a situation like uh, Lot, where we find ourselves perhaps in a culture that's given over to a kind of hedonism, that we are to, to struggle to maintain and hold on to our virtue. <laughs> hold on for a second. Okay, there we go. So, so even like Lot, we might find ourselves in a situation where we're faced with grave temptations on a day-to-day -day basis, and yet are to hold on to the life of righteousness. Uh, knowing that God sees the struggle itself and will deliver us uh, and give us the grace that we need to not simply persevere, but to, to grow in virtue in whatever environment we find ourselves. Okay. Although he lived with such men, Lot did not perish with them. Gehazi served the prophet Elisha and, and yet sinned. Likewise, Samuel stayed with Eli and associated with his sons. And when they perished, he was saved because he loved the Lord in truth and did not envy the ways of the godless. Judas followed the Lord together with the disciples, and yet he gave him over to the hands of the transgressors. And so, again, you know, what they're emphasizing is that we are going to find this mix even within the Christian community itself. And, uh, and we can't be blind to the fact that we, we ourselves struggle with contradictions that lie within our own hearts. And so again, have to be humble uh, in terms of how we're living out our faith and not judging others, but also looking deeply within to see how truly and fully we are conforming ourselves to Christ. So it is that each of us must always attend to himself. If we dwell with righteous men, looking to them, we shall live righteously ourselves, having the example of virtue close to us. But if we dwell with sinners, let us endeavor not only to emulate, not emulate their deeds, but rather to provide them with opportunities for salvation through our own good conduct. If anyone says, I am weak and negligent, and am easily led into evil deeds by heedless men, let him turn his attention to the divine scriptures and imitate the Holy Fathers in their way of life. He will then meet with the approval from God and men. Let him visit with men who fear the Lord and heal souls, and let him accept with longing everything they say. Let him show that he can put their words into practice, and in a short time, he will bear fruit. For the scripture says, ask thy father, and he will show thee, thine elders, and they will tell thee. Deuteronomy 32. 
And so to seek to emulate and to associate uh, with those who are living a righteous and holy life. And it's interesting here, we're told that in a very short while, if we do immerse ourselves in the scripture, if we do seek the counsel of our elders, uh, if we give ourselves over fully to the ascetic life, we'll begin to see fruit in a short period of time. It does not mean perfection or the, the fruit in abundance, but we'll begin to begin to see a change within the human heart. And the same is true with, for example, the practice of the, the Jesus prayer. I was recently reading uh, St. Ignatius Bryankinov, uh, Bryankininov, I think it's called, his last name is. And uh, he says that, you know, to take up the Jesus prayer now, even if you've never heard of it up to this moment, and within a few months, you will begin to see the fruit of, of the peace that it brings to the heart that certainly with any spiritual discipline, uh, we only see the full fruit of it, sometimes years, decades down the road, but it doesn't mean that we see no fruit in a short period of time if we truly give ourselves over to it in a way that is, uh, is dedicated and disciplined. And this is especially true of the life of prayer, you know, to give ourselves over daily to deep prayer uh, shows great fruit, I think, in a person's life. It might not certainly change the realities of our day-to-day -day life, the, the, the conflicts that we experience or the difficulties in relationships or sometimes chaos that we experience in our life, but we begin to experience something of the peace of Christ. And, and so <clears throat> always worthy of giving ourselves, it's always worth to give ourselves over to this disciplined lifestyle. We must realize that he who lives in the Cenobitic monastery, disregarding his own salvation and doing deeds antithetical to it, will court very severe punishment, not only for himself, but also for the souls of those who are destroyed through him, his having been a model of sloth and evil. Again, however, he who cultivates the virtues and thinks of his own salvation will be granted great glory in heaven, having made himself a model of virtuous life for his brethren, and through his own zeal, having aroused the eagerness of the more negligent to carry out the commandments. For just as he who has struggled first in the line of battle and has broken through the enemy's phalanx is honored, honored above the rest, so he who is vigilant in doing the work of the Lord and provides for the many an example of service will receive greater glory from God. And so just as we see the negative fruit from a person who's slothful or negligent, so we also see positive fruit uh, within communities or families, uh, one who embraces the uh, spiritual life with, with great zeal that uh, they become a model of virtue and encourage a kind of zeal among those around them through their, their personal example. And I think I've mentioned to you a modern elder who said, you know, one prayer within a family elevates the entire family. Uh, one might not immediately see the effects of that, but over the course of time, that person can become a source of stability for the whole family and raise the family up as a whole in terms of the, the things that they are attentive to 
or value or give importance to in their day-to-day -day life. And so we should never become discouraged by the fact that we are surrounded and say, if we live in a particular culture, you know, university culture in which I live isn't known for being, you know, place, a place of great virtue, uh, mostly of secularism at best, and then a kind of hedonism at the worst. Uh, but one should not be anxious about that or overly focused upon great numbers of individuals living the life. Uh, the, what we are called to is fidelity to Christ. And uh, this is what's seen, you know, there is a kind of within history itself, you know, this kind of ebb and flow where, you know, there will be a Christian culture will emerge and, you know, maybe the churches will be full or there won't be enough churches to contain them all. And then it will be a period of time where a church is persecuted, uh, where churches are destroyed or where the faithful will drift away altogether. And we are not to become anxious in those times, uh, but rather to be ever more attentive to Christ, living in a spirit of repentance and simply seeking uh, to live faithfully to the gospel and trust that God will make that bear fruit, that whatever we offer him in love, he can produce the fruit that he desires. And, you know, St. Philip Neri always had that great thing. If I truly, you know, 10 truly detached men, I could convert the world. And so even, you know, if we have a parish where, you know, there are, you know, 50 people, you know, if they are all focused upon Christ and there's a deep love there and fidelity, even though that's hidden from the world or seems insignificant from the world, it can be what holds the world together in so many different ways and uh, or holds the church together. And uh, this is what we should be confident about. Small seeds, as we hear in the gospel, can bear great fruit over time. Any thoughts on this last section? Any comments? Okay. From Antiochus. Just as the wasp eats the products of the labor of bees, so also a slothful brother impairs the virtuous existence of a community. And just as a cowardly soldier paralyzes the hands of his fellow warriors, so also a negligent monk weakens the eagerness of his brethren. For this reason, God will punish him very severely. It is therefore better, brethren, to dwell with a few people who are pleasing to God than with, with those many men who despise the commandments of the Lord. For where there is fear of the Lord, there is also love and unanimity, and God dwells in the midst of such people. But where men do not fear God, there is strife and envy, and where there is envy or jealousy, there the evil one is pleased. And so, Again, we, we shouldn't be distraught, perhaps, by, you know, having a few close individuals in our life who we have a, com where there's a common mind or a shared desire for Christ, and that where we see ourselves perhaps being somewhat isolated in the world, and not to become dis discouraged or despondent about that. 
And I think what the author here is saying is, is true, that it's, it's a far greater thing to live among those few that share that desire and that longing, that there's such a bond there uh, that gives such strength and hope that it's far greater uh, to have that than uh, to live in the, in the midst of those who disobey God's commandments altogether. That despite the abundance of friendships there, there can be an emptiness of life. And uh, that can be true in churches as well. You know, there can be an abundance of people and yet an absence uh, of, of life. Uh, in terms of how, how, how fully the members of that community are seeking Christ in their life. And so it's never about filling the pews or filling our life, I think, uh, simply with those things that sort of satisfy us on a surface level. And in the church, sometimes we can slip into that as well. Well, we can be too focused on numbers or what seems to be uh, things that are successful and not focused enough with on the interior life or the, the deeper fruit that we're we are called to bear. He goes on to say, it is preferable then to live with a few good men than with a multitude of unprofitable men, just as the divine scriptures have instructed us. For the author of Proverbs says, do not desire a multitude of unprofitable men if the fear of the Lord is not with them. Indeed, one righteous man is better than a thousand sinners, for in the assembly of sinners, fire will be kindled. Another passage says, do not desire an unprofitable multitude, and if they increase, do not rejoice over them if the fear of the Lord is not with them. Do not entrust yourself to their life, for you will groan with untimely grief. Any or one righteous man who does the will of God is better than having impious children, for from one wise man a city will be replenished. Ecclesiasticus, that is Sirach. Wonderful line from scripture. From one wise man a city will be replenished. Uh, again, we see this so often within the life of the saints, where the church is going through difficult times. We saw this in particular during the Counter-Reformation, that it was often, you know, a, a handful of individuals that helped to re revitalize the church. And, uh, and I think that can be, that certainly can be true in every generation as well. This deep fidelity can be transformative. And God can produce fruit through one, one person that's in abundance. Eric. That uh, quote from Sirach, is, is that, could, that, could we interpret that as a reference to hell? Like a prefigurement of, of hell in the Old Testament? Uh, you mean? Fire being, oh, fire being kindled in the, among the midst of the sinners. Oh, the earlier part of it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's certainly speaking of the judgment coming and uh at the time that this work was written you know i think the clarity of what hell, hell is or if they were speaking of hades or something along those lines or uh what's the name of the other name for it anybody help me out here sheol sheol that's right and uh so whether the author was speaking in those terms you know we don't know 
but certainly, I think when we read this through the lens of the Gospels and through Christ's own teaching, you know, we are warned that our we cannot hold the grace of God uh, cheaply, and that we will be called to, to give an account to how we've embraced this love in our lives and shown it to others. That again, you know, God has held back nothing from us in terms of desiring our salvation and doing everything to make it possible for us and doing so at every single moment of our life in ways, in a multitude of ways that we do not see and acknowledge. And uh, so, you know, as our faith grows, I think our awareness of that should grow as well, you know, of our unworthiness of it, that certainly it hasn't been earned uh, but also that God shows us a generosity uh, that calls for a response from us, uh, like the servants who say we are unworthy servants, we've only done our duty. It's not that we do things over and above what God has provided us. You know, that, and so all the readings, you know, from the scriptures on and through the fathers, I think, give us this constant uh, or seek to heighten our consciousness of the uh, of sort of the urgency of the moment, uh, which I think sometimes we we lose sight of. That uh, every moment is um, filled with destiny, you know, because we are presented with this opportunity to love or not to love. And sometimes we let those moments slip past us or choose the opposite path. And, uh, and I think as we enter into the Christian life, uh, what comes along with our you know, greater vision of the love and the mercy of God is also the urgency of how we respond to that gift, that life is short and we're in this world for such a, a brief time. And yet the every moment for us has great weight and great meaning. Letter D from Abba Mark. When you see two evil men who have love for each other, know that the one cooperates with the other to accomplish their evil will. A haughty man and a vainglorious man will gladly enter into an alliance with each other, for the former praises the vainglorious one as he slavishly cringes before him, while the latter exalts the haughty one as he continually praises him. Keep yourself far away from them so that you may not suffer the harm that comes therefrom. And so we see in the Gospels so these unholy alliances arise, uh, the Sadducees and, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, begin, you know, plot, equally plotting for the death of Christ. And uh, in relationships in our own life, there can be these unholy alliances that develop. And uh, what is described here is something that's not beyond us in the sense of falling in, into it that there can be those who appeal to us in a particular way and that we in our response to them feed what, what it is that they desire as well. Uh, and uh, that sort of, again, un unholy kind of bond uh, 
or uh, on the level of sensibility, you know, of being attracted to each other's personality uh, is something that produces great evil. That the personality of the other and how the, the interior life is enacted uh, will, will attract others that share something similar to it or are fed by it or by the opposite of it. So like is attracted to like. And so those who are virtuous will be attracted to those who are virtuous and who love God. But similarly, those who are given over to a particular passion wholly are going to be attracted to others who will help foster that within them or, or nourish that, nurture that into even greater life. And we have to be very careful about this in terms of guarding our own, own hearts. Because you know, often we will look to others that are going to confirm uh, the way that we see things. You know, it's always a, a blessing, I think, to have a friend who is honest with us and who can communicate what we, we need to hear and, uh, and who's willing to disagree with us when they feel that we've begun to take the wrong path. Anything, any comments or questions about Appa Mark's thought here? Very challenging paragraph. You know, I've read over this a multitude of times now, and this one, for some reason, stands out. And uh, maybe it's because I've seen it in my own life. I think when uh, oftentimes, for example, when we find somebody disagreeable, and even it doesn't have to be as it's described here, but when we find somebody in common that we find experiences disagreeable or problematic, that we can give full reign to our contempt or our disapproval, and we can feed off of each other's, you know, negative thoughts. And uh, rather than looking for the more charitable path uh, to protect the other especially if, if their actions affect us directly. And, and so I think what is being described here is ever so important for the spiritual life, because I think we fall into it more, more often than we realize. Letter E from the Gerontcon. A brother asked an elder, if I see some of my companions re returning to the world, how can I not be scandalized? The elder replied, if you should think of dogs hunting hares, you should, I'm sorry, you should think of dogs hunting hares. When one of the dogs sees the hare, he pursues it, overcoming every obstacle to reach it, while the other dogs not seeing the hare, but only the dog pursuing it, run with the dog up to a certain point, but then subsequently they turn back. The dog who sees the hare and chases after it does not cease from his course until he indeed reaches the hare, pray, pray, I'm sorry, paying no attention to the dogs that have turned back, giving no thought to the cliffs, the woods, or the goads, and being in no way hindered by them. He clings continually to the goal of the hunt and looks only to the hare he is chasing. In a similar way, he who seeks after our master Jesus hastens to catch up with him, 
cleaves unceasingly to the cross, overlooks everything and surmounts all the stumbling blocks that he encounters until he reaches the crucified one and lays hold of him who lives and who abides. It's a beautiful image, I think, uh, and certainly one that we don't think about very often in our day because uh, not many people perhaps engage in this kind of hunting or the use of dogs in hunting. But the imagery, I think, is very powerful. The, the lead dog, the one who spots the hare, will use every effort uh, to pursue it and to catch it. Uh, whereas those who are just following and have, do not see it don't have the same desire within their hearts to, to catch it. And so eventually they will uh, cease from exhausting themselves in the pursuit and break off. And uh, I think this can be true for us as well, that we can be motivated to a certain extent by others' enthusiasm or their desire. Uh, but unless we, we see the goal ahead clearly and we, we have a desire for the Lord, as is spoken of here, and for all that brings us closer to him, that unless we see and experience it in, uh, for ourselves in and through prayer and the sacramental life and through the gift of faith, we will often break off from that pursuit. Our faith will wane or will become negligent in the spiritual life. And sometimes we will give up the pursuit altogether. And again, it's, you know, I've always, and we've mentioned this many times before, how interesting it is to find this language of desire so often within the writings of the fathers and how important that is to foster it and to maintain it throughout the course of, of one's life. The desire for the Lord that, you know, the ascetic life isn't meant to deaden uh, the interior world. It is to, to put to death the, the sinful inclinations, or rather by the grace of God to transform them, to order them toward God, the desires, the appetites that we have toward him, in order that we might, first of all, live the life that he's called us to, but also to pursue our greatest desire, to pursue him. And this language comes up over and over again in the fathers, and it casts the ascetic life in a whole different light for me, because it's often, there's a negative connotation, I think, when we think about asceticism, things like fasting or keeping vigils, uh, you know, or abstaining from certain foods or other forms of penances. We think of the denial of the self rather than what that opens up for us and what it increases within us, the desire for the Lord. And again, this hunger for the one alone who can fulfill our deepest desires. Carol. Oh, remind me, reminds me of the Song of Songs. He whom my heart loves, I held on to him and would not let him go. Right, we find in the, the writings of the, the mystics, especially, you know, John of the Cross, uh, Teresa of Avila, you know, so many of the Carmelites, the Carthusians, this language too of desire, uh, you know, of, uh, uh, you know, running out at night, seeking the beloved uh, and, 
you know, coming to this point that this is what they desire above all things, uh, to the point that everything else begins to slip into the background, that they have eyes only for Christ and see him and all the things in their life, including the crosses that they bear, they bear. And so even seek out the cross, as it were, uh, because they know that it draws them close to the heart of the beloved. And, and reading the fathers, we see that this, uh, this kind of desire was, you know, present in the, in the beginning in the spiritual life, that our asceticism isn't seeking a kind of mindlessness, thoughtlessness, or lack of experience of emotion, uh, sort of, uh, you know, this kind of interior peace uh, because we lose this desire for anything, you know, within this world or for ourselves, whereas the Christian life is deeply rooted in desire, our desire for the heavenly bridegroom, and each soul is the bride, and so there should be this thirsting, this longing uh, that we feel within, within the heart, uh, and especially when we're approaching something like the Holy Eucharist and receiving the Holy Eucharist, that our heart, within our hearts, there would be this thirsting as we're approaching the altar to receive what alone he can give us. And uh, rather than, you know, just again, receiving it in a kind of pro forma kind of fashion or perfunctory way. Ashley. Ashley writes, this conversation is bringing to mind a story that a friend told me over the weekend about his missionary work in Ghana and how this priest told him about a tree native to the region where each tree's root system mirrors the canopy of that tree. So if you had a tree with a small canopy, the root system would also be small and shallow. The tree not very sturdy, where a large canopy would indicate a deep and widespread root system and a sturdy tree. He said that you could always tell the health of this tree by the condition of its canopy. He reflected that if the roots of our prayer life are sprawling, secure, reaching out deeply in imitation of Christ, and if we are unwavering in our desire to be with him, then the canopy of our life, the fruit, will mirror those roots. The fruit canopy will tell of our intimacy with Christ, often without having to speak a word, that we can't help but to reflect the state of our interior lives. It is, it's a magnificent image, Ashley. And, uh, and it's especially as it ties to prayer, as you describe it here, uh, our prayer, if our prayer life is sprawling, secure, reaching out deeply, if we are constantly putting out into the deep, then that reality is going to manifest itself in our day-to-day -day life, in the way that we love others, in the way that we pursue the life of virtue. So it's a beautiful image. And again, as you said, without even having to speak, I think we have gotten into this position that so often our bearing witness to Christ and to the faith uh, is emphasized through the things that we say or how we articulate the faith rather than how we live it. And so the glory that is manifest within us 
by the life of Christ uh, within us and shining through us. And uh, when we lose this sense of an interior life, then I think as you write here, we're not going to bear much fruit or experience much security. Very good. Any other thoughts? That's a lot, That just that little uh, meditation is a lot to, to think, think about and take away with, with us tonight. And finally, in this hypothesis from St. Ephraim the Syrian, the enemy hastens to arm the more negligent brothers against the more sober ones. But the more sober, if they are diligent, find a source of spiritual labor in the more negligent, enduring their weaknesses for the Lord's sake. He who acts mercifully to his neighbor will find mercy with the Lord. Judgment is merciless for him who has not acted mercifully. Do not help your brother to commit sin. Hasten, if you can, to rescue him from it, so that your soul may live in the world. Let the fear of God be ever before your eyes, and sin will have no control over you. So, the enemy hastens to arm the more negligent brothers against the more sober ones. But the more sober, if they are diligent, find a source of spiritual labor in the negligent. And enduring it for the Lord's sake. And so, whenever we experience someone who's negligent, or even when the evil one, as we're told here, stirs him up against one who is vigilant, that this is not something that should dissuade us as Christians, that uh, when we experience that, mercy, love should lead us then uh, to help the individual, you know, to, uh, to help guide them through example, through friendship, uh, through our prayer, through particular sacrifices, again, to see their salvation and well-being and their spiritual struggles as our own, rather than turning away from them. And uh, this is where I think our, our mercy is really put to the test in our day-to-day -day life, especially when we experience the negative fruits of a, a person's action in our life, or when it seems to impede their actions seem to impede what we are trying to achieve. And, you know, God, again, in that, if there is one act of mercy shown in that relationship, that that could produce more fruit than anything that we might set our hands to or seek to achieve. And what a powerful reminder, I think, that is for us, because I think, uh, you know, again, we get so focused upon particular goals and achieving them that we will neglect others and their needs or see them as obstacles in our lives. And, uh, you know, and so what, whatever we produce, even if it seems to be things that are godly or good, might not bear the fruit that we imagine, that if in the process of pursuing them, we leave others behind or we neglect them and treat them without mercy. It's a hard thing, you know, because I think 
that we so put so much pressure on ourselves and we see, receive so much pressure pressure from those around us and including within the church to show the fruit of your actions and to be able to show it on paper and uh and if somebody seems to get in the way of that you know it's very easy for us to say i got to get rid of this person you know they're they're going to drag me down in one way or another and uh and so we have to act in a kind of counterintuitive fashion there or really be asking ourselves you know is this what god wants us to be attentive to is this really the more important thing in the moment than the specific goals that we have in mind to accomplish? It's always an important thing, I think, to be able to discern. It's much easier for us to lose sight of the person or to dis dismiss them. <clears throat> Any thoughts or comments on this hypothesis as a whole or this last paragraph? Okay, hypothesis 26. Uh, those coming to the monastic life are received after much testing and admitted after scrutiny uh, to see who's reliable and what tasks are entrusted to them and how they carry them out. And we begin from the life of St. Pacomius. So this hypothesis involves some more lengthy stories, but again, they're quite beautiful and uh, really help us, I think, to unpack the, the important things for us to, here to see. When St. Pacomius was still a young man and his heart burned for the love of God, he was eager to become a monk. On being informed about a, a certain hermit named Palamon who lived alone, he went to him wishing to remain with him. After reaching his cell, which was close to the desert, he began to knock on the door Palamon opened it a little and said to him, what do you want? And for whom are you looking? For the elder was rather strict as a result of living alone for a long time. Pacomius replied to him, God sent me to you to make me a monk. The elder told him, you cannot become a monk for the work of a monk is no small matter. This is why many who have come here have grown slack and have not endured. Pacomius said to him, the intentions of men are not all the same. Receive me and time will inform you. The elder repeated to him, I told you that you cannot become a monk. Go elsewhere and live the ascetic life for a period of time. If you subsequently return, then I shall receive you. I pass my life here in harsh asceticism, and by the grace of God, I partake of nothing other than bread and salt. I abstain completely from oil and wine. I keep vigil half the night and prayer and study of the words of God. There are times when I stay up the whole night. After hearing this, Pacomius was in awe at the strictness of the elder's words. By divine grace, he proposed in his soul to endure every toil bravely and said to the elder, I trust in the Lord that he will provide me with such strength and patience that I shall be deemed worthy of attaining perfection in this place through your holy prayers. St. Palamon then understood with the clairvoyant eyes of his soul, Pacomius' faith and eagerness for salvation. He opened the door and admitted him, clothing him with the monastic schema. 
They both lived the ascetic life in the same place and occupied themselves in prayer. Their work consisted in braiding ropes and weaving sacks. They toiled and labored, as the apostle says, not for their own respite, nor for the sake of collecting money, but to support the poor. When Palamon saw Pocomius' obedience in all matters and his progress in asceticism, he rejoiced greatly and glorified God. Uh, it's interesting to know that, you know, Pocomius is this extraordinary figure within monastic history. And it was one of the first to develop a specific role and role of prayer and that then has passed on through the generations and has affected every subsequent role that has been, that has developed. And, uh, and part of this undoubtedly has to be the fruit of this encounter with Palamon, who is lost more in, 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 in history itself, not as well known certainly as, as Pacomius, but he's the one that shaped the desire and the heart of Pacomius by putting him to the test and seeing where his desire really was to be found, knowing the difficulties of the monastic life and the ascetic life, uh, he had to put him to, to the test, even to the point of sending him away or telling him to go away, uh, that he couldn't possibly maintain the asceticism. And all of this pushed Pacomius then within his heart to say that, you know, that he would endure everything and uh, experience, experience every toil of the life of, of this monk and in order to, to reach the goal that he desired. So it, it gave a kind of firmness to Pacomius's longing for the Lord and his embrace of the ascetic life. And it's for this reason, you know, the communities have these periods of time of novitiate and uh, where the, there is to be this kind of testing of that resolve. And we'll hear in some of the stories that come forward that often the physical work that is given is very difficult and challenging or humbling in its nature, uh, that the, the, the rigors of the life itself, whether with sleep or diet are, are very great. And sometimes uh, they are put even to greater tests than, the, the, than uh, in regards to the asceticism than, than what, the other, what the monks are living themselves. Uh, to see whether or not they could endure them. And uh, often we don't hear this so often, you know, and again, because I think we've lost this sense of obedience, but also the, uh, a sense of the ascetic life. And again, counting the cost and making sure that there is this true desire for the Lord behind it. One can dress in black robes, and play the monk or play the priest, but not really live the life or have that desire for the Lord within their, within their hearts. Remember from the stories from Climacus too, that you know, the more negligent monks desire to hear the, the ringing of the bell, the refractory, rather than the ringing of the bell for prayer. You know, they, they like the security of the monastery, but because it provides you know, a daily meal and a comfortable place to sleep rather than allowing it to form and shape the heart. And so, you know, this isn't a time, and I remember hearing John Paul say this, 
about priesthood in particular, this isn't the time, you know, when there are less vocations to lessen, you know, the demands or the scrutiny that takes place. In fact, we should be making it even more challenging and scrutinizing more the desire that individuals have to serve God and to serve others. Not simply accepting everyone who walks through the door. In fact, if seminaries were doing their job, that there would be a certain number, a certain percentage, and perhaps quite a few who would leave after a period of, of time where the greater truth would emerge about what they, what they desire. Eric. You've given a, a little bit of an answer to my question, but can you give a fuller cultural background to why so many people um, pursued or attempted to enter the monastic life? I mean, I mean look at today, you know, it's, it's very hard to get people interested in the monastic life. Right. Uh, what, was, what were the motivating factors that were in play in those days? Well, I think that's, you know, I was reading a little bit today from Patriarch Daniel of Romania. And there's been sort of a resurgence of faith in Romania and a resurgence in the monastic life, as well as in the faith of the people in general in Romania. But he talks about this sort of ebb and flow throughout time in terms of the life of faith. And we see the same thing exists within monasticism. At times there are things and realities that give rise to a heightened desire for that life. You know, it begins initially by the acceptance of Christianity, you know, by the ruling power and sort of uh, a, you know, the desire on the part of individuals when martyrdom is no longer as a threat as it was then to embrace this kind of white martyrdom, a dying to self in sin through the ascetic life. Uh, but uh, over the course of time, this desire can, can wane. And closer to our own time, there was this resurgence in monastic life after the Great War, after World War II. You know, when men experienced the horrors of war and uh, the loss of life and the brevity of, of life, the monasteries all of a sudden began to overflow. And uh, certainly one understands that, and that can be a very powerful motivating factor uh, in the sense of seeing one's own mortality, the remembrance of death, and being confronted with that in such a concrete fashion that then makes men re-examine their life and the purpose of their life and what they desire. And so there was great growth uh, in that period, uh, but then there was you know, a waning of that uh, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you know, for all different kinds of cultural reasons. And uh, a, a lot of individuals left. And uh, sometimes that quick growth in community doesn't allow for that formation or that testing to take place. Uh, and so that's, you know, this patriarch Daniel was warning against that, that numbers alone don't necessarily reveal this kind of depth of conversion or depth of faith, that the churches can be full, but is there really this desire for the Lord? And so even something as powerful as the war and this reflection upon mortality can draw a lot of people into this way of life. 
uh, it has to go deeper than that. There has to be this sustained desire for the Lord and for holiness uh, that is fostered in a continual formation that takes place. Otherwise, it can wane, or when there is a cultural shift or that memory begins to wane, uh, then people will begin to exit or to fall away from the, that way of life. Uh, there was an institute, uh, sort of an independent institute that studied the whole crisis with the priest abuse scandal, you know, with the, the sexual abuse. And one of the things that they discovered was that there had been a breakdown in the ascetical life, particularly in terms of how it applies to the celibate life, that to live that life and to live it fully to be focused upon God and to set aside some of the, certainly the natural goods and the things that are beautiful of life uh, to, to serve the, the Lord in this way requires a deep ascetical life, a deep life of prayer. And that began to diminish, you know, long before I think the, the Second Vatican Council took place. You know, it was already beginning to diminish in terms of the understanding of the value of it and the source of that uh, of the practices within the spiritual tradition itself. And with that breakdown, we not only see sort of this exodus from religious communities, but these aberrations begin to manifest themselves as well, and that are completely contrary to the life of, of faith itself and contrary to the role of living the life of a priest. And, uh, you know, and it got very little attention. And, but, uh, you know, the, the more that I certainly read from the fathers, I have to say, well, of course, you know, if there isn't this radical giving of oneself over to Christ, uh, and that we are not seeking to do that constantly, that these things can emerge in our day-to-day -day life. And, uh, so often we've talked about there being no static position within the spiritual life. And so if we begin, you know, to become negligent and live for ourselves and lose our focus upon Christ, it's not as though we're just going to stay on this level plateau. We're going to see the passions emerge in ourselves and find ourselves doing things that we perhaps never imagined that we would ever do. And if there is also something within that culture, uh, say of, of the priesthood itself or the life of the church that lends itself to that, then we're going to see the worst things emerge. And think about what damage that, that has done to the church as a whole, to individuals' life, their faith life. So, you know, I think our fundamental attitude has to be there but the grace of God go I, and that there's no sin that we are incapable of outside of, uh, of, the, of the grace of God. And so we cling to him in every way and we embrace every, everything that can bring us to him. We walk that narrow path that leads to the kingdom. And, you know, we can water down the gospel so much that we become very comfortable with a kind of mediocrity in, 
and, and the spiritual life of what's good enough rather than what God desires for us and what he's made possible for us. I find myself often talking to people about prayer in particular, that especially in the context of spiritual direction, that we most of all want to be attentive to God and be listening to God as we engage in prayer and allow him to draw us along into that depth of intimacy and that depth of prayer. And if we allow that to happen, what might emerge is something that might be completely different that we met than what we imagined for us in terms of the shape of our life, the depth of our prayer, how much time we spend in prayer. And so long as we hold fast to this image of what prayer means for us or a disciplined life or what it means to give our life over to Christ and to seek him above all things. So it's always going to be confined by the limits of our own judgment of what that would look like. And I think what we see within the monastics is this unwillingness to allow that to happen, that they immerse themselves in it so deeply and let go of their you know, self-will and self-judgment and allow themselves to be guided by others that have walked that path that we see extraordinary things begin to emerge within their hearts. It's a frightening thing because we all like limits. And we all like boundaries that give us a sense of security, of peace. And so we often will shelve the, the, the grace of God when he's calling us to prayer. Not now, God, I have something to do. I'm tired, God. I've got to go to sleep. So, so that brings us to 830, but we were at least able to get through this first story of Pacomius, but it gives you sort of an image of what we'll be looking at. You know, how deep is our desire for the Lord? And what are the ways that we allow that desire to be tested in our life? Do we see you know, how God is prompting us to a greater response to him. And then through the circumstances of, of our life, through our reading of scriptures, through our reading of the fathers. Any final comments? Okay. So just a reminder to the group, there, there is no Wednesday night group this week because of the inaugural event for the campus ministry program. Uh, but we'll pick up next Monday with Eric Gatinos and then the latter next Wednesday. Okay. So thank you all and keep me in your prayers this week. And I'll be praying for all of you as well. So when we close with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you all. Thanks be to God.